great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said, You do not find one godly man who came out of an affliction worse than when he went into it. And we get to find and discover that particular truth in John chapter 9. Um, This entire chapter is one story. That's rare, um, but it happens. But this whole chapter is one story. But you're fortunate we're not going to do the whole chapter today. We're going to we've got a few weeks to get through all this. This wonderful experience. And um, <clears throat> so we look forward to the next couple of weeks as we uh, deal with John chapter 9 and Jesus giving sight to the blind man and how we see that plays itself out in his life and maybe even in your life as well. Let's read the first um, seven verses. As he passed by, talking about Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, how we know, how John knew he was blind from birth, we don't know. Nobody's told us. And his disciples asked him, by the way, he hadn't mentioned his, I'll get to reading in a minute. He hadn't mentioned his, um, John hadn't mentioned specifically the disciples of Jesus since chapter 7, verse 3. So... They've been out of the picture. I guess they've been there, but not in our picture. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing That's the Word of God. So, as he passed by or as he walked by, doesn't really make much connection to chapter 8. And so there's some people that say this is immediate. And there's some people that say it's about two months um, after chapter 8 that this particular event uh, takes place. Uh, We aren't really sure. Because as he passed by, it doesn't really help us a whole lot. But there is a wonderful connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9 and even chapter 10, but particularly chapter 8 and 9. And when the Holy Spirit gives us these connections, it's important that we pay attention and point them out. You'll remember at the end, if you were here, at the end of chapter 8, <coughs> Jesus hid himself. From the Jewish leaders who were blind to his truths, um, he made it so that they couldn't see him. And we don't know how, what form that took or how that took place, but he hid himself 
the Bible says, uh, specifically so that they would not stone him because they were in the process of picking up stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy. That's at the end of the chapter. And here he comes to a man who can't see him at the beginning of chapter 9. Chapter 8, like I said, he hid himself from the Jews, but also in chapter 9, toward the end of the chapter, we'll see that he reveals himself to this blind man. Also, we see in both chapters, Jesus declares that he's the light of the world. In John 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a great promise. And then in this chapter, in verse 5, I just read for you, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. In chapter 8, with the Jewish leaders paying attention to him and arguing with him, we see that he's despised and rejected. At the end of this chapter, as this chapter moves along, we'll see that he's received and he's worshipped. Chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, we saw where those Jewish leaders are stooping down to pick up stones uh, to throw at Jesus. And here, Jesus, in an attitude of servanthood, although we're not really sure what all it means, he's stooping down, he's making mud pies for a blind beggar. Chapter 8, we see people... To receive the word or who hear the word but don't receive the word. In chapter 9, the word is received immediately. He said to him, verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went, heard the word and responded. In chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple and he's called a A demon-possessed man. Chapter 9, we see that he's called Lord. In the context of chapter 8 and chapter 10 and chapter 9, in in the middle, we've got the Feast of Tabernacles. He declares himself the light of the world there in chapter 8. This healing incident, sometime later, maybe just a few moments, we don't really know. Positive proof that Jesus is the one who brings light to lives. And then we have the parable of the good shepherd in chapter 10. Those who uh, the shepherd calls by name are his. We go back to chapter 8 and we see that this blind beggar was one of the ones who Jesus called to himself. One of the sheep. And so the dominant theme in all of this, we see in the very first verse, he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. It's the sovereignty of divine grace in this man's life that Jesus walking by sees him. Oh, you can rest assured there are plenty of other beggars around. But Jesus picks this one out. And gives him favor, mercy, 
Great. He saw a certain man. The man didn't see Jesus. The man didn't, didn't cry out for mercy. He had no capacity to see Jesus because he'd been blind from birth. And so Jesus sees him and chooses him. Jesus takes the initiative. This is one of his great sovereign acts. That's why this is a parable. We get confused about that word sometimes because translators have messed up Jesus' stories that he told in the Gospels and only called those parables. But a parable is nothing but an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This one just actually really happened. And so this is a great, great parable for us to learn today. First, we see the disciples' question. Passed by, saw the man, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And going, going through chapter 8, that we've raised that question, how can a heart be changed that's specifically closed off to God's grace or God's proclamation or God's word? How can a heart be changed that has an attitude of persecution toward Jesus? That's what we saw in chapter 8, instead of an attitude of praise. How can a person be blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and all of a sudden receive sight as to who he really is? The only answer to that question is Jesus must bring about that conversion in somebody's life. Jesus is the only one who can bring light into a darkened soul. And in this chapter 9, we have a glorious picture of that beautiful truth in the life of this man. Cannot be too strongly emphasized that this healing at least through verse 34, is purely physical. But then we see that his spiritual healing takes place from 35, falling on to the end of the chapter. Plus, unlike the Jewish leaders in chapter 8, this man knows he's blind. But unable to cure himself. Because only Jesus can give sight to the blind. He says in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And so the disciples, they're walking with Jesus and they fix their eyes on this poor beggar. An unfortunate man. And he's sitting there begging, and he, ha- he has no idea that God himself is standing there, peering at him, looking at him. And here's the initiative of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The individual mercy of Jesus Christ. We see fully in verse 35. And the mystery of the timing of Jesus in this particular man's life. 
one man among so many. And there's this mystery that at this particular time, on this particular day, Jesus chooses him to give sight. But why? I use that word particular, particularly. Why? It's a great theological term, particular grace. Theology is a wonderful study. When we deal with theology and we look at man's depraved condition, and we see how God throughout Scripture, through the doctrines, the teachings of the Word, tends to lead us to greater love for people. I say that facetiously because it's not always true. It's not true in the case of Jesus' disciples here. They were judging this man. They had no love or care for him. No compassion for him. Hey, we got a theological question, Jesus. Who sinned that this man was born blind? They didn't care about him. That's true for some of you, sometimes for me, too. We debate theology. We try to debate the finer points of theology, and we talk about it, and we use our theology, our doctrines to judge other people, but it does not show love through our lives. It just shows judgment. That's the tragedy of the disciples here. They show no human concern, no genuine concern for this man. Theology didn't teach them to love. It just taught them to condemn. So Jesus, this this blind beggar over here, did he sin or was it his parents? Sad commentary to our twisted human nature that just automatically concludes that human misfortune or human affliction or human pain in other people, it's funny, we don't think about ourselves, in other people brings about divine retribution simply because of human misbehavior. We commonly think that way. You might not admit it. We often suspect if somebody is more than ordinarily suffering, then they they must be a more than ordinary sinner. These disciples believe that. The disciples of Jesus Christ, to the extent that they wondered who's the most remarkable sinner in this man's life. Okay, he's born. He was blind from birth, which means if he's the one who sinned, he had to sin before he was born. Or it was just his parents. He's a man condemned by men. And he, he's probably sitting there listening to that. Listening to the disciples of Jesus, fortunately at this point, he didn't know who they are. Condemn him. You're blind from birth because somebody sinned. 
How depressing must that be? Because you know what? He probably had the same theology. And he's been asking that question his entire life. What did I do to cause this? What did I do to make this happen? What did my parents do? Their question to Jesus shows judgment, not care and compassion. That's a lesson for us. Particularly those of us that like to talk about doctrine and theology. Either this man's a congenital sinner, sinner, thanks to his parents, or is a practicing sinner by choice. Now, interesting enough, he is both. But that's not why he's blind. Where do they get this idea? Where does theology come from? Well, it may have come from the second commandment, Exodus Chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Quite possibly, that doctrine grew out of that particular teaching. It could be that uh, it came from their knowledge of the book of Job. Job's friends, remember them, friends? Have you had friends like that before? Their self-righteous advice, Job 4, 7 through 9. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish. By the blast of his anger they are consumed. Job 8, verse 6. If you're pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Isn't that great advice? The only problem is Job, the entire book, was written to refute the teaching of the friends. That great pain comes from great sin. That somehow Job's sin contributed to his suffering. The entire book was written to refute that false teaching. But it could be that the advice of the friends overcame these disciples at this point. Now, Ezekiel does refute that. In Ezekiel 18, we have a proverb. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. So this weird psychological teaching that you hear about from time to time called generational curse is a curse on the church today. It's false teaching. We still see it in something called biblical counseling from time to time. And we need to stand up against it. Uh, Later in that same chapter, verse 20, the soul whose sins shall die, true. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. 
The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So sadly, these disciples consider this present situation that they are facing with Jesus as just a fascinating theological problem, and they need an answer to it apparently quickly, quite apart from any sympathy or care for a blind beggar. They saw there are only two options. This man sinned or did his parents sin? The problem was there's another option. <laughs> Jesus answer. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now. Let me go back a little bit. It is true that sin may produce sickness. But all sickness cannot be attributed to personal sin. And Jesus is saying to them, okay, enough with theology. It's time for us to get about the work of God. The answer pretty much destroys their theology. Anyway, nobody's sin caused this man to be blind. But blindness, like other bodily afflictions, is all the the effect of sin. By Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's not always directly attributable, your affliction or your pain or your suffering, attributable to sin. But it always is remotely. Had Adam never disobeyed God, the human family would be free from disease. If Adam had never disobeyed God, we'd be free from suffering. We'd be there and that day will come again. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. Praise the Lord. It's reason enough for us to hate sin, right? If Adam had never disobeyed God, there would be no none of that. If sin were not a part of natural man today, there would be no more pain or suffering. That's enough for us to hate sin every moment. So in one sense, yes, sin caused his blindness because of the fall. But not directly. And yes, the man's a sinner. Yes, his parents are sinners. But his blindness is not connected connected to that. It is a symptom of a fallen race, but it's not connected to their sin. Just look like that of Lazarus. We'll see that in a couple chapters. Uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead is directly related to giving glory to God through the glorious working of the Son. And this is death we're talking about in chapter 11, not just a blind man right here, as if blind is not as bad. John 11, 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him, Lord, 
He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Same thing. So the truth is that personal affliction and sickness and even tragedy can glorify God. We need to be reminded, too, that there's something. And I can't imagine an affliction worse than blindness. There may be others. But I can't for me. So there is something infinitely more awful than physical blindness. To temporal suffering. And that's a blind heart. Far worse. And we just left all that in chapter 8. But we see it here in this man. And the divine plan of things. This poor man at this time has been selected in grace. To give a marvelous testimony to the works of God's wonderful glory. And Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it's day, night is coming, the seasons come and go. The, 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 the seasons produce times of uh, periods of limitation and opportunity for us. The, the, the seasons present cloudiness for us and sunshine for us. The seasons present darkness and light for us. And the seasons are interrupted by storms and rain and hurricane and freezing temperatures. And in the last two weeks in Charleston, we've seen all of that. Warmth and cool breezes. The same is true in human history. According to God's plan, even today, friends, there are dark clouds on the horizon for God's people. Jesus is referring to two different things here. He's referring to night is coming. Why? Because in four or five months, I'm going to be hanging on a cross. And after my ascension, you're on your own. I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit. The bottom line is, it's going to get dark in the next few months for you disciples. Darkness is on the way. We've got to do his work now. And we're going to see through the rest of this chapter those works. But it's true, too, that message is for us. Certainly, your eschatology might inform you differently, but dark clouds are coming for God's people. We've got to do God's work while it is day. What are those works? Well, for the one who, he says, for the one who sent me. See that? Work the works of him who sent me. Jesus came into the world sent by God on God's mission. From God. Came from God's very presence. That's the point of contention he had with the Jewish leaders in the last chapter. 
declaration of his own divinity. He's the one who sent me. I've got to do his works and we've got to do them now. Now, if you have the King James, it says I. The real better translation, the correct translation is we. We must work the works of him who sent me. And those works are that's the work of seeking man. It informs our evangelism. God seeks man, seeks man. Jesus took the initiative with this particular man. He's reaching out to this particular man. It was not the man who reached out to Jesus and said, have mercy on me. Jesus reached out to him. In fact, this man was blind. He didn't even know help was available. Those of you who are blind in your sin, till God opens your heart to his truth, you don't know it's available. If Jesus had not reached out to this man, he would have remained blind and in darkness forever. The same is true for those of you who believe here today. If Jesus had never reached out to you, you would remain blind and in darkness forever. The work of seeking man, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There's work in caring for man. God cares for this blind man. He cares for the blind. Matthew 20.28, Even as the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, he cares. He came to serve. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because what? He cares for you. There's the work of love and compassion that they must do. God loves and has compassion for anyone in blindness and darkness. How does he know he's God? He can't relate to me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know this affliction. He doesn't know this pain. He doesn't know this suffering. He doesn't know the tears I shed. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, uh, to help in time of need. And then there's that work of delivering from darkness and giving sight. Paul talks about that in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that mission is urgent. That mission was urgent from them. They only had a couple months left to do what Jesus was sent to earth to do. And there's an urgency for us, too. He, he says we must work the work while it's day. It, it, it's urgent. Night's coming when we won't be able to work. That word must means compulsion. Or there's a necessity to do what we need to do. There are no questions. There are 
No suggestions about this matter. This is stuff that has to be done. The works must be done. Why? Because the time is limited. Christ and his disciples and his followers and you and me, we don't have forever to do the work. It has to be done now. The opportunity is now. Only so much time is given. Whatever is to be done has to be done today. While there's still some daylight left. Night's coming. The time when no one can work. Time will end and the opportunity will be gone forever. Jesus said in John 4... My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Wouldn't it be great if we could say to ourselves, you know what? If I don't do God's work, I will starve to death because that's my food. Starvation is not a very pleasant affliction either. And so he displays the light. As long as I am in the world, that's why he's, I'm, I'm going to be gone soon. In fact, I'm going to be gone in a few months. I'm the light of the world. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is about ready to display that very graphically in the life of this man. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. Jesus coming. There was a dark time. You know, we had, we had that intertestamental period. There was a, a dark time for God's people. And, and the clouds sort of break with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Those clouds are going to roll back in. So it's important we grasp the opportunity while we can. Take that opportunity to learn and serve and believe and identify with Jesus Christ and his work. While the light of truth is still in front of us and we can still see it. Tomorrow you may be in the hospital. Tomorrow you might not even be here. Night is coming when nobody can work. Take advantage of the light. Take advantage of the truth. Now! The great hymn writer Horatius Bonar said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I looked at Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. And then we see the miracle. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with his saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, came back seeing. No real party involved in this. 
No real big celebration. John just tells it like it was. In this miracle, Jesus took all the initiative. The blind man did not come to Jesus. He didn't ask to see. Jesus came to him. But. But. It's big. But. He still expected that blind man to respond in faith. All right, this sounds silly. I just spit on the ground, made mud pies, put them on your eyes, go wash. You get that? So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. This was a unique miracle in scriptures, this giving sight to the blind. From Genesis to John, no prophet, no priest, no apostle ever gave sight to blind eyes but Jesus himself. And Jesus did this type of healing more than any other. And since healing of blind eyes is the work of the Lord, it's just more evidence that he is God. He's just displaying it more, particularly after chapter 8 and what went on there. We know that God's work is making blind eyes see. Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And we know that it's going to be the specific work of the Messiah. It's prophesied, Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And if spitting on the ground and making a ball of mud and rubbing it into somebody's eyes weren't offensive enough to Jews, guess when he's doing it? Look at verse 14. Now, it was the Sabbath day. (laughs) Oh, my. Making clay on the Sabbath broke the rabbinic regulations. There were actually a specific regulation for this. Making clay, as if you're making bricks or whatever you're making. But why mud? Why external means? Why saliva? Why not? He's God. Just say, be healed. Just speak the word. Why you got to go through all this? And you know, all you go to the commentaries, go to every commentary you can, and there are a lot of silly responses as to why Jesus did this. And my response is, I don't have a clue. I don't know why I did it. You know, John Calvin. Um, it made a suggestion as to why Jesus did this, which pretty much makes more sense than all the others I read. Calvin suggests the mud pack was designed to double the intensity of the blindness in order to magnify the cure. Sort of like when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and they poured water on the altar. Remember that? St. 
still some people think there's some faith-inducing symbolism here. Um, there is some history of saliva having some curing properties, especially if you're the firstborn. So, see, that's why you just can't go there. But if nothing else, it was to communicate unmistakably to this man the necessity of obedience. We see that issue of obedience in the book of Second Kings, the story of Naaman, the Syrian ruler. Remember that story? Had leprosy. Elisha is the prophet who he comes to for healing. Second Kings 5, verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And you're, Now, why would he say seven times? He, Elisha could heal him. With one dipping. Go and wash seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away. He's a ruler. He's a big, he's a big guy. He's a big shot. And went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar... The rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? So he actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, like a baby's bottom. And he was clean. Obedience. Obedience to the Word of God. A little more succinctly, you remember when, when um, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee in um, John chapter 2, his mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. And to those people watching on, there had to be people watching on, their neighbors will see them uh, next week. Their neighbors and their other people had to be watching on. He had to get some help to go to the pool. It was clear to them that Jesus was the one who had performed this miracle. They watched him put the mud on his eyes. They watched him go. They watched him wash it off. It was clear to them who Jesus was. All this, all this man is aware of is the touch of Jesus' hand and hearing his voice with a command. And probably he's not even aware now that Jesus has left. Not even there. He asked for help. He's always had to ask for help. People lead him to the pool of Sloan. John tells us that means sent, which is interesting because Jesus just sent that man there. And think about it. He starts to wash his face. And he's skeptical. I'll tell you why he's skeptical. Because do you know how many quack doctors has come his way over the years? And he's tried every kind of remedy. And then this silly thing of mud and saliva gets put on his eyes. Hey, but I'm blind. 
guess I'll give it a shot. Then it happens. He can see for the first time in his life. And it's only physical sight at this point. But it does illustrate to us the perception that comes upon a person who receives spiritual sight. This is the terrible picture of natural man. The sinner is blind spiritually. The sinner's understanding is darkened. What does blind mean? It means you can't see. This is a little problem I have with those of you that think that all these cute, sweet little babies are born with some little spark of goodness in their lives. And one day when they're accountable, they'll choose Jesus. No, they're born blind. Totally blind. And their heart is darkened and they hate God. The same is true for those of you here today who don't know Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes you. Ephesians 4.18 They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. If you're here today and you're lost, that describes you. Cannot see the awfulness of his condition. Cannot see that he's in imminent danger. Cannot see his need for a Savior. John 3.3 says, except a man is born again, he cannot see. So, if he can't see, he just needs more light, right? No. That's not true. More light will not help a blind man see. He needs the capacity to be able to see given to him. A.W. Pink says, It is not a matter of mending his glasses, reformation, or of correcting his vision, education, and culture, or of eye ointment, religion. None of these reach or can reach the root of the trouble. The natural man is born blind spiritually. Isaiah 48 says, We're rebels since birth. The psalmist says that we're brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Psalm 51. A man needs a Savior from the very first time he draws his very first breath. That's the condition of every human in some unregenerate state. By nature, Paul tells us, we are children of wrath. That's the condition of natural man. And there is no hope until Jesus stops by, chooses you, and gives you sight. Matthew Henry said, 
those whose eyes are open, whose hearts are cleansed by grace, being known to be the same person but widely different in character, live as monuments to the Redeemer's glory and recommend His grace to all who desire the same precious salvation. Isn't that wonderful? And that salvation is provided by one who died on the cross in our place. And we remember that today, even today, as we come to the table. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you and praise you that you give sight to blind eyes. And for those of us who know you by faith today, we're grateful that you opened our eyes to the truth as to who we are and who you are. We thank you, too, for saving our souls by your death on the cross in our place. We gather today to remember in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.